Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The world works in certain ways until a new great idea comes along and changes everything. We need a name. We. We live. We dream. We work. I'm Travis Kalanick, and I will never back down from a fight. And if no one wants to believe in me, I'll make them believe by being undeniable. These kids don't overthink. They don't get bogged down about the way things have always been done. They want to change things now. Hello, and welcome back to Still Watching Downfall of the Startups. I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. I'm here today with Vanity Fair Hollywood editor Hillary Busis. Hillary, hello. Hi, Richard. I'm very excited to elevate the world's consciousness together. <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I feel like we've been doing that individually for years, and now it's it's great to do it together finally. So today we'll be covering three episodes, uh, Super Pumped Episode 4 called Boober, The Dropout Episode 6, Iron Sisters, and We Crashed Episode 4, which is called 4.4. Uh, later on in the episode, we'll hear our, our colleague Katie Rich's interview with Vanity Fair writer Gabriel Sherman, who in 2019 wrote a feature for the magazine about Adam Newman and his spectacular fall from grace. Uh, he has lots of interesting stuff to say about Newman and Newman's connections to Uber's Travis Kalanick. As ever, uh, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, whatever, as you listen along, please email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. All right. So to start off, Hillary, I have to ask you a very important, perhaps difficult question. Which is a more striking image? Rebecca Newman in full Navi regalia, or Elizabeth Holmes doing a wild dance while wearing a mask of her own face. <laughs> Honestly, I, I feel like neither of those images maybe is as haunting as the dropouts recreation of Elizabeth Holmes's Errol Morris commercials, um, where that oh, yeah. just iconic image of her head floating on the white background, her enormous eyes reflecting the camera. I mean, it's that's that's something that is tough to get out of your head once you've seen it. There's that moment in this episode where uh, you hear that, you know, the fictional Errol Morris off screen and he's like, no, actually, we want you to look into this and in the camera. And then her eyes turn directly at you. And it's like, Ugh. <laughs> it's 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 quite quite something. Uh, have you seen the, the his documentary about this whole thing? I have. Yeah. Um, back uh, back when it came out. Because he somehow like retained rights or something to this exact footage. And it's 
stitched throughout. Um, I don't think the doc is that great, but like that part of it is really fascinating. It is. Yeah, it's pretty. I mean, what's amazing, too, is that when he filmed that commercial um, or those commercials, I'm not really sure whatever app, what if something actually happened to the footage before he used it in the documentary. But when he was filming it, he was like so many other people under the spell of Elizabeth Holmes and, you know, clearly believed her to be a visionary, believed her to be this i mean what she said she was which is i mean that's that's the interesting tension in that documentary um which the dropout doesn't really get into because it has so much else to talk about but yeah he 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 kind of yeah he he's basically that film kind of feels like him trying to get to the root of why he believed it you Mm -hmm. know when there was so much mounting evidence and we see that evidence begin to really coalesce in this episode we have john carrie brought in uh the wall street journal reporter who um kind of blew this thing wide open and we have the introduction of a really key figure, someone that uh, Liz Merriweather, the showrunner, um, mentioned when I interviewed her a couple episodes ago, uh, is Erica Chung, mm-hmm. who um, was, along with Tyler Schultz, one of the really early whistleblowers. Um, what? How did you? How do you feel like the show handled all that? Because there were a lot of moving parts between what Tyler and uh, Erica are doing, and then what Phyllis and Richard's uh, Fuse are doing. Um, did it all sort of map out kind of uh, coherently for you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's that's the impressive thing about the dropout. Um, a, that it manages to weave all together all of these threads simultaneously without being confusing, without doing too much timeline jumping, um, without a lot of unnecessary back and forth. And B, that it manages to make this story, which I feel like I at least know pretty well, having you know read Bad Blood and listened to the uh to the podcast that the show is based on and also having seen the Errol Morris documentary um like having consumed all of that I still find the show really fascinating really well done and like it's it does have new insights to add to that pile of of stories about Elizabeth Holmes who is maybe at this point I don't know one of the most written about criminals of the 21st century um but yeah I I love the way that this episode ping pongs back between Tyler and Erica doing their kind of uh, Scooby-Doo uh, <laughs> uh, mystery solving and like the Boomer Brigade coming together like these these disgruntled older Avengers all uniting to try to take Elizabeth down and the introduction of Carrier and everything and the introduction of a surprise whistleblower at the end of the episode too I mean I, I think that it's it's a smart way to illustrate the forces that were kind of joining in order and how many people it took I guess to uncover the uh the deception at the heart of Theranos, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, here you have in this episode five people who really know what they're talking about saying this is all bullshit, and it still took a while after this <laughs> for this to all kind of come out. Um, but yeah, I think what something what you said about like, uh, you know, you've read Bad Blood. We've I listened to John Carreyu's podcast about her trial. Like, I I feel like I'm you know we're both pretty well versed in at least the basic plot beats of that real life story. But I think what the show is able to do so well, and this episode is a, is a sterling example of that, is, yes, it's, it's imagining. We don't know these things for facts, but kind of put us in the, the human sort of side of things and, and, and see the, 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 the roundness of even Elizabeth Holmes as a person. Um, I, I had sort of made the supposition last week that um, with the death of um, uh, Ian uh, Gibbons, uh, that that was really when Elizabeth on this show uh, really becomes the villain. Mm-hmm. And I think she is really functioning as the villain in this episode. But we do see, especially in her kind of creepy interactions with Sonny, increasingly creepy interactions with Sonny, uh, that while she was hard charging and really, you know, at this point now, 
harming actual people, uh, potentially. Uh, there was, there's still, I don't know, do you still find something dimly sympathetic about her at this point in the show? I mean, certainly she, she's very in over her head. She understands that. She has decided that the way to get through it is by doubling down, which obviously is a terrible, terrible mistake to make. Um, I don't know. She certainly gets less sympathetic, you know, after Tyler confronts her at the birthday party, tells her what he knows and is hoping that somehow she was unaware of this, that this is kind of happening underneath her. And then I, I feel like that's a sort of a real like villain heel turn to when she tells him like unblinkingly, very confidently, you don't know what you're talking about, just, you know, openly lying to him. Um, and doesn't seem to she doesn't seem to be feeling much remorse, at least as characterized by the show, for what she's doing. I mean, you're you're sympathetic, I think, certainly about her relationship with Sonny, who's clearly controlling and volatile. And I mean, that is obviously a very toxic relationship. I think that you can feel sympathy for her in that, but not really feel not really understand why she is, you know, committing the fraud that she is committing at the same time. Yeah, and also, you know, kind of further testing that sympathy in this episode. Uh, and also, there's a parallel here between the the episode of Super Pumped with the Austin Geit character and Susan Fowler, who uh, would go on to become kind of the really first whistleblower about the culture at Uber, mm-hmm. um, where there are these women. I mean, in Elizabeth's case, she's, you know, she's being interviewed and she's talking about um, the Iron Sisters, you know, that the, there's an Iron Lady next to a glass ceiling or whatever, however she puts it. Um, Next to every and, glass ceiling, there's an iron thank lady. You. Could you do the rest of the episode in that voice, please? Richard, um, it would be my <laughs> dream. But then you have Phyllis Gardner and now Erica Chung coming from very different directions to be like, well, no, I'm a woman in tech, too. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that like we should just believe this like obvious charlatan. So I think this episode of The Dropout and and, and to a slightly lesser extent, although, you know, there's Ariana, Ariana Huffington also in, in this episode of Super Pumped. Like, Women being brought into these spaces and functioning them in them in different ways and really challenging the the narrative that, like, at least Holmes was trying to establish, which is, like, if you don't support me, well, you're probably a little bit sexist. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, it's a it's an interesting complicating of I, I hate this term now and feel like it's gotten so overused, but it is apt here. The, the girl boss, the archetype of you know, 20, the aughts and the 20 teens of uh, this female CEO who is somehow a barrier breaking, groundbreaking feminist just by virtue of the fact that she's a woman and she has a business, um, which is something that obviously got very complicated in the past couple of years, especially as several of those women had were found to have problematic business practices and, you know, problematic labor relations and, you know, were firing employees for being pregnant and things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the dropout especially, I think, and I'm sure that it's coming on Super Pumped too, um, as Susan Fowler kind of gets to be more of a central character, if she gets to be more of a central character. But I, I think that that was really interesting on the dropout this episode too, how it complicates this narrative that Elizabeth has been promoting and benefiting from um, that, you know, somehow she deserves more benefit of the doubt and she deserves support simply because she's a woman in a male-dominated field. Um, and I think that that's... I think that that's really interesting, especially, you know, when it comes to, I think, Laurie, when Laurie Metcalf's character um, is trying to figure out why everybody wants to believe in her so much. It's really the answer is because she's a woman and because there are not very many women in tech. And A, it makes people feel good about themselves for supporting a woman in tech. And B, 
they there is something about her she is she is pretty and blonde like william h macy's character says and that makes the men in tech feel flattered that she would be paying attention to them that she'd be trying to woo them uh to be on her board and everything and yeah i mean it's it's a really complicated uh interesting set of conflicting variables yeah i think in this episode uh you really see that kind of the men feeling a little flattered especially in george schultz Mm -hmm. you know who when tyler confronts him with really credible you know testimony essentially about like what's going on behind the scenes and it's his own grandson yeah yeah right exactly and and this you know in real life this really this this tore this this relationship apart and they they did not reconcile um before george schultz died uh which is pretty sad um but but he talks about you know elizabeth and the company in these kind of very vague terms because he doesn't really know what they're doing but there's something about Elizabeth, you know, they're cozy planning the birthday party. And even uh, his wife, played by Ann Archer, seems to be a little bit like, what is going on here? <laughs> and I don't think that it's supposed to be that George Schultz like, has a crush on her or is sort of, you know, Or it, even it, that he's senile that or something. It's just, you know, he is a man who is used to being right. And the the implication that somehow he could have bet on the wrong horse is enough to, like, send him in the other direction and set him against his own his own uh kin yeah yeah and and i think that you know in, in terms of that there are so few women in tech like that that's what makes the erica i mean character in in this you know show's version of things so heartbreaking and it happens quickly i kind of thought they would maybe stretch her disillusionment over a couple episodes but we're nearing the end of the series and so maybe they just had to kind of compact it um but like the the, the almost instant disappointment and sort of just like wait what is going on here like I would have to imagine that the, that heartbreak is compounded by the fact that this was a rare, you know, female CEO in this incredibly male space uh, who actually has just built a house of cards. Oh yeah, totally. It must be a lot more disappointing to be kind of betrayed or baited and switched by somebody who you were primed to trust because you identified with them. And we have a, an interesting, I don't know, inversion of that in this episode of Super Pumped, where, you know, we we meet Uma Thurman as Ariana Huffington, um, and she has this little tete-a-tete with Travis, and she's like, oh, I know you're an asshole, but you know what? You gotta be. You have to, you know, you have to kind of stand firm in this. And so she's, and then, of course, she ends up with a board seat that she, uh, believes, stepped down from in 2019. So two years after Kalanick had left, she was there uh, for a bit longer. Um uh, and and you know her approach, along with Austin Geitz, um, when Susan Fowler approaches her, is basically like, yeah, but this is kind of the world, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you just kind of deal with it. Which like that doesn't seem obviously like a good approach either. Um, but it is interesting to see these these two kind of journeys into these spaces uh, told different ways on these shows. Yeah, I mean, a, a very chilling and you know very like believable quote from the hr rep to susan is i don't see a need to ruin his life over something so small it really feels like it kind of crystallizes a pre me too especially mindset as if like getting in trouble at uber is life ruining you know (laughs) (laughs) um what do you make of uma thurman as ariana huffington i mean i honestly i think that what super pump has been missing is a famous actress doing a silly voice um yep yep so the introduction of ariana is coming not a moment too soon um yeah it's a it's sort of tough to say she doesn't have a ton of screen time in this episode her introduction happens um you have the tarantino narration calling her 
you know, like this visionary, I mean, I, I wrote this down too, because it just felt really, uh, really emblematic of the Tarantino narration. This is not somebody who says the first thing that pops into her cabeza, daddy-o. Like... Yeah. And the weird irony of having Tarantino narrate it while it's Uma Thurman. I, I, there's there there's is, something yeah. very strange about that. <laughs> Him talking about how beautiful and like, and brilliant she is. That is a layer that I hadn't considered. At least he didn't say the best feet in tech or something, you know, because that would have been really bad. Um, but I think it's I think it's a really interesting uh, kind of meta comment on the show that her arrival as this, you know, it, it is a famous actor playing Ariana. Ariana Huffington herself is quite famous. Um, so that's part of the the sort of jolt of, of seeing her show up in this episode. But it's also like there are so few women on the show. Yeah. And all of a sudden now we have Austin moving more to the center of the story. And she is someone who is still kind of, she doesn't work for Uber anymore, but she still sort of has kind words to say about Uber and Kalanick to some extent. Um, and then we have Susan Fowler. So all of a sudden these women are kind of entering this space and it's not their fault at all, but it's disruptive to the, the, the ecosystem, the order of things. And um, I, I guess I would have to kind of credit the, the, the showrunners for kind of waiting to introduce this because it it needs to land i think as a a jolt to the system you know like we because we've been spending so much time with men yeah i'll be really interested to see what it does with ariana if she becomes more of a rounded character or is sort of this like benevolent uh like force kind of floating over uber um and i yeah i i don't know how much interiority we should expect yeah, I, I don't, I, you know, to be honest, I I didn't really know anything about, I kind of had forgotten that she was even on the board of Uber. I didn't, you know, I guess I hadn't been paying attention to her whereabouts around this time. Um, so yeah, I don't really know what to expect. But um, even if it's just, you know, a, a sort of pop in here and there at a board meeting scene, um, I'm, I'm, I'm liking what Thurman's doing. Um, is I, think the she accent, sounds, I think she sounds like yeah. Ariane Huffington. Yeah, totally. And I think you're right that we need, you know, we, we, we've become pretty inured to funny voices on these shows, <laughs> um, which means we should probably also uh, bring in um, We Crashed uh, uh, 4.4, 4. Uh, because while the bulk of the, not the bulk, but a good you know portion of the episode is focused on Adam pursuing SoftBank, uh, Masayoshi-san, who is the head of SoftBank and gave them the titular $4.4 billion investment. Um and I believe still has not gotten any of the many billions of dollars it invested back uh, from WeWork. Um, so that's, you know, a huge focus of the episode. But we also have this really interesting narrative with Rebecca, um, who, you know, w- does the Navi costume for, is that, that's for a school kind of fundraiser thing? Yes, it's some kind of costume party. Um, I'm sure that that school desperately needs money. I mean, have you ever shown up like overdressed or overcostumed for something? Do you know that particular like plop of dread and horror when you walk into a room <laughs> and no one else is as dressed up as you are? I mean, I guess at least they didn't have her as a Playboy bunny, which is traditional in uh, setups like that. Yes, correct. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm reminded of a time when I was, I think I was seven or eight, and I was invited to a Halloween party. Just a few of the boys that I was friends with at school. And it was kind of a big deal because I like I, I think I'd never like been to like a little party before like that, um, or at least that I was invited to. And it wasn't like someone's mom asking my mom if I could come. Um, and so it was a Halloween party. And I I mean, I was about eight years out, away from being from coming out, but I dressed up in full witch regalia, like full, 
wig, hat, dress, sh- like pointy shoes. I mean, I was, I went full, full tilt. And I show up and the other boys are like, have like a little robber mask on. Oh, or God. Like, or, and I, I mean, it was the most mortifying. I think about that, that, is that Katie Dipple tweet? Oh, where, about the Babadook, you were just, yeah, you took the words yeah. out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as much as I find Rebecca to be, especially they really amp up the woo talk in this episode. She's, she's a grating figure and, and I think, you know, was a complicit in a lot of WeWork sins, but like, I, I did feel for her in that moment. And so did. Uh, Alicia Kennedy, the character played by America Ferrara, who is an interesting new infusion of energy. What did you make of, of Alicia's introduction? And do you have any theories about how she's going to kind of function uh, throughout the series going forward? Well, she's definitely going to be a wedge between uh, Rebecca and Adam as it as both of them have designs on her. I mean, it's it's uh, interesting to see Rebecca kind of form a friendship uh, that's separate from and apart, like separate and apart from WeWork and Adam. And that is something like that is that she wants to be hers. And then he kind of immediately swoops in and, you know, steals Alicia uh, and gives her a job, Um, which is, I I think that's pretty, pretty poignant and does kind of make you feel for her. Like she is, she is, it is difficult to have empathy for her considering, considering kind of everything about her life and about her choices. But uh, you do, she is, she does seem very fundamentally lonely and uh, you can see how excited she is to finally meet somebody that she feels like can, can be a relationship that's primarily revolved around her and another person uh, that she just kind of wants to, she's been searching sort of for her purpose and something that can like give her life meaning outside of her relationships with, of men especially um and then to see that kind of pulled away from her you know it's a it's it's sad um and it does make you feel for her yeah especially because she had that sad little scene where she googled herself and it was like who is gwyneth paltrow's cousin exactly and then it was like rebecca newman adam newman and then she googles alicia who i believe is a fictional person she is um, um although if you read uh gabe sherman uh gabe sherman's 2019 we work story there's a hint as to who she may be based on and i'm not sure if saying that would be a spoiler um but in that story it seems like there's a real life analog for the character well spoiler or not uh that's a great you've provided a great segue uh to the interview that katie rich did with uh gabe sherman uh which we'll go to now all right great Okay, so I'm here with Gabe Sherman, special correspondent for Vanity Fair. Um, first of all, hi, Gabe. Thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. Um, so I, uh, you know, devoured your story from uh, the fall of 2019 about WeWork, as did so many other people. Um, and before I pepper you uh, with questions about Adam Newman and how this company kind of rose and fall, uh, your work for Vanity Fair is a lot about the Trump administration, especially back then, about Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell. Um, how did WeWork wind up being um, the topic for you at that point? Well, at the time, um, in the fall of 2019, the collapse of WeWork's IPO was um, one of the biggest stories um, in the business world. I mean, it's hard to to remember, you know, before COVID and before the, the tragedy in Ukraine. I mean, there were so many other stories that were dominating the headlines. And um, and we at, at Vanity Fair and The Hive especially were fascinated with the collapse of, of Adam Newman's empire. So, um, you know, we decided that this, this timing and, and the scale of the story was right for a magazine feature. Had you been following WeWork and its its rise before that point, or was this really the first time you dove into it? 
Uh, I had been following it, obviously, as, um, you know, as someone who's fascinated by the world of power and business. And in fact, you know, having covered the, the Trump administration, um, I knew you know, some of the players in the, in the WeWork uh, world. You know, Adam Newman had grown close with Jared Kushner, uh, of course. And so uh, I knew about that relationship. And, you know, actually, this is sort of dating myself now, but um, my first job in journalism um, in the early 2000s was as a real estate reporter for the New York Observer uh, before Jared Kushner had bought the paper. Um, and so, you know, I had sort of um, had this fondness for the real estate beat, um, you know, throughout my career, even though I had moved on from it. So um, this was actually a chance to circle back with a lot of the sources that I had, you know, made, uh, you know, more than 10 years ago. Um, so it, it felt like a natural assignment for me. Well, and I think um, We Crash, especially in its earlier episodes, is really frank about how New York real estate is this really clubby, really well-established world that is hard to break into. And Adam Newman, and later on in this fourth episode that we're covering on this week's episode, um, kind of using other people in other cities to break into real estate markets. What was his power for convincing these very entrenched, very rich real estate owners to go with him? You know, I think really what um, a- what Adam was so brilliant as was um, seeing himself as a gatekeeper to a rising generation. You know, real estate in New York especially is dominated by, you know, old white men um, who, you know, wanted to feel like they were in touch with the culture. Um, and, you know, Adam could sort of parlay that that insecurity and that fear amongst these older uh, billionaires that they were missing out on the next big thing um, to seduce them and get them to invest uh, millions of dollars in in WeWork, so that was that was part of the appeal was that it wasn't necessarily he was selling real estate, he was selling kind of this this dream that he understood how millennials were going to work, and that these these co working spaces that felt more like clubhouses and frat houses would be the future of offices. And if you're, you know, a billionaire who owns, you know, buildings all across Manhattan, and you're thinking I need to fill these buildings with tenants, you know, Adam made a compelling case that. The people that he could relate to were going to be the ones um, filling those offices. Your story uses this great term, geezer capitalists, for the people who are investing in WeWork. And I don't know if you've watched the the Hulu series, The Dropout, which is about Elizabeth Holmes, but there's an episode have, of that yes. that's about the Walgreens executives. And, and, and yes, I, I think I think a similar impulse, right, of these people who mm-hmm. worry that they're getting left behind. Is that what's driving all of these crazy Silicon Valley stories, these old white men who think that they are going to miss out unless they go with these uh, convincing schemers? I mean, I think, you know, certainly in the case of Theranos and WeWork, these were both companies that uh, were, um, you know, highly valued, but, you know, definitely not profitable. I think, you know, in, 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 in this case, this is clearly, um, uh, this was clearly a pattern where the, the charismatic founders were um, manipulating the insecurities of these older businessmen who felt like they weren't, um, they were going to get left behind. You know, obviously... You know, companies like Google and Facebook and, and Instagram, you know, real tech companies that have you know tremendous underlying businesses to them. They don't need that kind of um, uh, the kind of uh, salesmanship that Elizabeth mm-hmm. Holmes and Adam Newman had. I, I think that's really what the difference is. Un- fundamentally, Theranos and WeWork just were not real companies. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess we we've been kind of broadly calling this about tech scams, where it's like Uber, the Uber show, the Theranos show, when we work, but we work was it was doing what it was selling, right? Like it's more of a real company yeah. than Theranos, right? Sure, no, of course. I think yes, yes, it was. It was in that sense, it was a legitimate company. I think 
the the but the economics that Adam Newman was promising and the valuation that he expected were completely out of touch with what ultimately is just a pretty standard business. I mean, what WeWork does is they sell leases to people and uh, basically subleases. WeWork leases the space and then they go out and find people to pay them a monthly membership and they you know hopefully profit off off the difference. But I mean, that has been, you know, co-working was in existence long before Adam Newman came around. I mean, it was not a glamorous um, industry. It was a you know temporary office space is a pretty kind of like low um, profile business. But what he did was that he tricked the marketplace to think that what he was selling was kind of a lifestyle and a movement that should be valued like a tech company. And that's where I feel like what he was selling was com- was not representing what the actual business was. And if you see today, you know, WeWork today is, you know, continues on in a much, you know, smaller way. And it's not, you know, it's it's doing what it's doing, but you don't read about it in the headlines because, again, it's not over promising what it's actually trying to do. Yeah. Well, in there in this fourth episode, there's a point where um, Adam Newman, played by Jared Leto, is saying, well, we have to spend money to, to have this rapid growth. And his colleagues are like, why does it have to be rapid? But I feel like that's a story that comes up mm-hmm. over and over again in tech where they're just so obsessed with growth at that level. Does it have to be that way? Like, or is there, can anyone well, learn from this and not do that? I think what you've sort of zeroed in on, it's interesting that you mentioned Uber, is my associate son, um, Masa, um, who uh, controlled uh, SoftBank, which was really the, the main invest, investor in, in WeWork. That was his philosophy. And he actually mm. was also one of the main investors in Uber. And what his philosophy was, was that he would sort of blitzkrieg these businesses, throw money at them so that they would grow so big that they would essentially corner the market and force out any other competitors. Mm. And, you know, maybe on paper that that theory might work. But in reality, what it was doing was that they were just throwing money at businesses that didn't have the underlying profitability so that once the music stopped, they were just a house of cards and it collapsed. Yeah. Yeah. The um, Speaking of Uber 2, in your piece from 2019, you said that I think um, Adam Newman reached out to Travis Kalanick when he was worried that um, Benchmark Capital um, on, on, on the super pumped uh, Bill Gurley plays a major role in that. Um, what do you know about Adam Newman and Travis Kalanick, like being in touch with that great or even like feeling like similar figures? Do they feel like similar figures to you? Uh, yes. Yes and no. I mean, I think they were both obviously charismatic and um, built sort of a cult of personality around around themselves. I mean, I think, you know, obviously Adam was, you know, married with five kids and, you know, some of his, you know, it was less sort of the broy kind of culture that Travis cultivated at at Uber. Um, but I think, you know, fundamentally they they were both once their investors realized that the jig was up, they both, you know, suffered the same the same fate. I think also what Adam's relationship with Travis kind of points to is also the fact that Adam cultivated kind of the his Rolodex was like billionaires, heads of state, uh, other CEOs, he fashioned himself as like somebody who, um, you know, only socialized and, and, and communicated with the most powerful people in the world. And I think a lot of people around Adam were just kind of like completely shocked that he had that self-confidence to think that he was on, you know, the level of, of all of these other people. Yeah, there's a moment in this fourth episode where um, America Ferreira playing this character, I want to ask you about later, but she asks um, in Hathaway's Rick and Newman, like, is Adam for real? And I think that's a question that you ask yourself watching this whole show. Like, how much does he believe in what he's saying? How much do you think he was for real? I guess where I come down is, does it really matter? Because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously he was real enough to have convinced his investors and his employees to buy into his his vision. So, 
you know, I find sometimes with these people, they tell themselves the story over and over again so that they ultimately start to believe their own bullshit. Um, but again, it's like, what does he truly believe? That's kind of the territory for novelists. It's like, as a reporter and a writer, I can only, you know, write about what, what I saw. And he was real enough that um, $12 billion was invested into his company. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and the same question goes for Rebecca Newman, too. And what the we crashed kind of angle is showing the partnership between the two of them and how they kind of pump each other up. But from your reporting, it does seem like Rebecca was also at least presented herself to be a true believer in the same way as him. Yeah. I mean, she sort of cultivated this Lady Macbeth um, uh, role for herself, kind of the power behind the scenes. And um, she was, um, you know, Inside the office, it's 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 interesting that a lot of the employees and senior executives had were more scared of her than of Adam because if you got on the wrong side of Rebecca, like she would very quickly um, either get you fired or sidelined. And there was this, you know, these it played out in both like ways that were hilarious and and, and tragic. You know, there was this one anecdote in my article about how she had met the mechanic for their private jet and she just didn't kind of like this guy, and so they had to fire this this you know, blue collar guy who's, you know, was hired to, to work on their plane. And she just cast him aside because she didn't like him. And I think, you know, the sort of entitlement uh, that that demonstrates, I think, is the dark side of what Adam and Newman, uh, Adam and, and Rebecca came to represent. Yeah. And then, as I mentioned, the America Ferrera, Ferrera character who comes in this episode, who is fictional, but seems to me to be um, representing the Soul Cycle, Soul Cycle founder, Julie Rice, who shows up mm -hmm. in your article. And um, what, like, can you just re recount that story of what happened in real life? Well, yeah, I mean, Julie was, um, really one of the, the real grownups that WeWork was able to recruit. You know, I think we should just back up and say that most of the people that, that worked at WeWork, they were, you know, straight out of college. They were, this was sort of their first job and, and they kind of bought into, to Adam's vision. You know, as WeWork grew, they needed to start to recruit some more seasoned business people. And so it was a big deal when 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 WeWork recruited Julie Rice to join the company as chief brand officer because SoulCycle at the time uh, had kind of built this this national following. Um, and so she came on and shortly after joining the company, Rebecca came back from maternity leave and, and basically said, well, I'm going to have your job now. That's my title. And, you know, it's a big deal having recruited someone to take the leap to join the company just to be told like, oh, wait, the founder's wife is going to take your job. And so I think that was kind of a, a, a warning sign that, you know, we work as long as Adam and Rebecca were controlling the company was never going to recruit the kind of talent it needed to outgrow the kind of uh, startup phase. Yeah, because it was so uh, cult of personality driven, right? Like they just didn't have the ability to run an office the way that normal yeah. people would want to work in an well, office. Well, and I think, you know, Adam would brag to people that he controlled the board. And even when he was flaming out and all after the scandals were starting to appear in the newspapers, you know, he said that, you know, I could fire the board if I wanted to. And he never thought that his day would come. And I think, you know, again, that's why at the end of the day, I, as a reporter, having covered the story, I sort of put a lot of the blame on the investors. I mean, these are the supposed savvy, sophisticated people that, you know, control billions of dollars of, of, of their clients' money and that they could just be so kind of duped by this guy. I mean, we focus a lot on Adam and, and his eccentricities, and, but I think ultimately, you know, Masa and, and, uh, and the other uh, venture capitalists who put all the money into them, I mean, they're the ones that really look dumb.
Yeah, and Masa is kind of is introduced in this episode, and you see how what a huge power he was. You know, at the end of the episode, he invests four point four billion, I think it is, in WeWork, and later on, you see him meeting with Adam and saying, like, you know, people say you're acting crazy, but I don't think you're acting crazy enough. He's a smart businessman. Why would anyone ever tell Adam Newman he's acting crazy enough? What is this guy's philosophy behind that? Well, I think I would sort of push back or challenge a little bit the the idea of Masa being a smart businessman. I mean, he mm. was incredibly successful and SoftBank was a, was a telecom company that made a lot of money doing one thing, but then he turned all that money into a venture capital fund and has been throwing money at businesses, you know, left and right that have been crashing and burning, you know, whether it's, you know, WeWork or Uber, which again, has never turned a profit. So I think Masa also is another kind of person that, you know, started to believe um, his own bullshit. And, you know, the track record, you know, does not, you know, speak highly of him as a as an investor. I think he's obviously a very smart businessman who who did well at one thing, but it doesn't mean like you can just you can't just create a company out of nothing. I mean, you have to really have the fundamentals. I don't think Masa was really interested in this doing the sort of the, the serious work of building a company step by step. He just wanted to snap his fingers and he wanted Adam to just, you know, create this empire out of out of whole cloth. And that, again, once the music stopped, the whole thing crashed down. Yeah. Are we past this point of the way investments work for, th- for those of us who don't follow Silicon Valley regularly? Does it work this way still? Or have people learned from Uber and WeWork and other examples? You know, I think the IPO market is definitely cooled. I think, you know, we are in a little bit of a, a different a different place, you know, po- post-COVID, um, you know, in the run up to to WeWork's crash. You know the 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 Federal Reserve Bank uh, of the United States and, and other institutions had pumped so much cash into the economy that investors like Massa just were sitting on piles of money that they needed to find something to do with it, and so the only thing they could do was try to find these these investments that you know were risky but had the promise of a high return. I think now that not to get too wonkish here, but like. The Fed is slowly raising interest rates. Um, you know, it seems like there is some dose of reality coming back to to investing where, um, uh, you know, the valuations, if you look at, say, Peloton, right? Yeah. You know, Peloton saw its valuation explode and now it's, you know, back to reality. And so, um, you know, I think there is there, whether it's Zoom or Peloton, I think there is still some euphoria around some of these startups, but very quickly investors are losing their patience once um once it's clear that they're not living up to the hype yeah so you've had your work turned into fiction before and we're in this boom moment right now of all of you know the uber the theranos the WeWork shows all airing at the same time like what do you make of it as a journalist when these shows get fictionalized and kind of get put in the public imagination do you wish that they stuck more to the facts or do you do you get the enduring fascination here well i i mean listen they're not documentaries so as you know as long as the as long as the the projects are presenting themselves as as drama and as fiction i mean it's i think it's you know people have been making art out of life for you know since the beginning of time so that's sure. nothing new i mean i think i think it's um i mean listen as as a journalist having seen the impact my articles about Roger Ailes had versus like turning it into a showtime series i mean there is there is something um irresistible about seeing like a great actor inhabit the role of this charismatic flawed figure. And so, Mm. um, you know, I found with my work, it definitely connected with people in a different way than, um, than it did through, 
through journalism. Um, and, you know, I think you can, my sort of philosophy was that you could, you know, play with time and you could make some dramatic choices, but they all had to be grounded in the facts of the story. I think once you start to, to really like, like, for example, the social network, um, which was a great movie. I loved it as a movie, but anyone who knows Mark Zuckerberg from his Harvard days knows that he wasn't like pining after this girlfriend and the, the origin of Facebook wasn't because he was trying to win back, you know, the girl that broke up with him. Yeah. So that's a case where I loved it as a movie, but as turning life into a story, I felt like that's a license that was a bridge too far for if I was adapting my work. I just feel so gratified as, you know, again, someone who's not following these IPOs uh, regularly, but learning from watching these shows all together about the geezer capitalists and things like that, that do feel so true to how this works. It feels like these shows are all getting at something really fundamentally true about this world, even if all the details aren't all aren't all there. Yeah. I mean, especially because like, you know, what's the joke? Like, OK, boomer, like these <laughs> these, you know, these these investors who have all the money and they're in their 60s, 70s and sometimes even 80s, like instead of just like going out into the sunset and letting millennials like have their their due like they still want to be in the game like they still want to feel like they're they they matter and so i think you know it was the hutzpah of people like adam newman and, and elizabeth holmes who saw that these these old guys just you know if you could make them feel relevant again they would just turn over their checkbook to you yeah god what happens when the boomers are gone where's all the uh, where's all the money going to go oh i maybe last question does jared leto feel right as adam newman to you does that is that the adam newman that you know or have reported on i mean you know it's it all has to be like believable in the context of the series i mean i think the 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 long hair and the israeli accent it's um you know, I, I think it's uh, it's again, I, I feel like, yeah, he's um, he's the kind of actor that can disappear into a character, as I obviously saw all as well in um, House of Gucci. So, yeah, um, this maybe this is the start of his he's done Italian and, and uh, Israeli and we'll see. Maybe he'll do <laughs> uh, maybe he'll play Putin. He'll play Putin <laughs> next. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta, Name your dinner emergency, we're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. 
Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, uh, Hillary, another thing that I wanted to discuss about uh, this episode of We Crashed is uh, the connection between this show and Super Pumped, between WeWork and Uber, which is this benchmark capital. Um, in, in We Crashed, we meet a character named Ca- Cameron Lautner, who, I, again, I'm not sure that's a real person. Um, and obviously, we have Bill Gurley over at, at Uber, um, who is the head of 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 benchmark uh, how do you find now that we're halfway through a lot of these seasons of these shows like is the business stuff still as interesting to you as the person stuff because i think we crashed in particular is much more of like a human drama with some business thrown in and sometimes i find that i'm i'm a little bit zoning out when we get into the real weeds of the of the money yeah i'm i'm with you um for no other reason than just the amounts of money being thrown around are so ridiculous and exorbitant as to sound fake. Like I I can't imagine $4.4 billion. Like it seems impossible that that amount of money exists in one place and can't be given and taken to another place. And there would still be money left in the first. Like that is just very difficult for my tiny mind to comprehend. I mean, it's more than I make in a year, you know, it's, (laughs) No, but there isn't there some sort of scientific precept that like human beings can't actually imagine a number bigger than a thousand. Like <laughs> if if you're like if you if you're like ten thousand people, your brain shuts off trying to count to a thousand. You know, like and I agree that the, the the numbers are so large that it almost starts to seem meaningless, which of course it's not. You know, but um, but it's treated as such. I mean, you watch in this episode of We Crashed as you know w- w- they're what losing two point three million dollars a day. That's yeah. ludicrous. Yeah, like again, more than I make in a week. Um and 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 yet like this 4.4 billion dollars is handed over because of I mean maybe it was more complicated in real life but like because of a speech at a tech conference that he related to, you know, because I, it Masa just likes that of, he doesn't wear shoes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he says you're crazy, but oh by the way, crazy here's 4.4 <laughs> billion dollars. Buy a um, pair of shoes with it. Yeah, exactly. And then you also have, you know, on on the dropout, like Sonny uh, who said he made an offer on a big mansion that he and Elizabeth can live together. And and I think that in the dropout in particular, the money doesn't I mean, obviously, that's why Walgreens is there. That's why cert, that's why certain board members are involved, like and certain employees, they, they want to get that cash out when when the um, the company goes public. But Elizabeth herself doesn't really seem to be she says she wants to be a billionaire in the first episode, but she the money doesn't seem to be the top concern. It's more the sort of intangible. I want to change the world kind of thing. And so I don't know. I thought it was an interesting little scene to be like, oh, right. But these people are, you know, at least in theory, she and Sonny very rich at this moment. Yeah. And I mean, the the shared universe of it all is also interesting. You know, that benchmark is popping up more than once. Um, I think it's it's funny that Anthony Edwards also played a uh, money man in uh, Inventing Anna on Netflix, which is right. Yeah. Taking place at the same time as these shows, but not, you know, really in the same milieu. But yeah, it's it's just uh, I mean, I guess maybe it's just a symptom of like streaming TV's hunger for shows based on the recent past. But it's interesting to see the same faces and the same personas crop up over and over. And, you know, 
kind of shows that in this like very rarefied that this very rarefied world of people slinging around millions of dollars is you know kind of small and that these people all knew each other yeah and and when when adam newman says you know because they're like we're ble- we're bleeding money he's like you know google apple uber they all bled money too you know they they all lost money at first um amazon twitter i believe wasn't amazon like not profitable until like very recently um, i would believe it yeah, it's just just sort of insane to think. But it about. just shows the 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 capriciousness and the like kind of insanity of these business models, which is that there is none. That it's just based around massive growth, um, at like by any means necessary as fast as possible, and like pumping up, like having creating an inflated value so that you can then IPO and pay out your investors. And like actually, the product doesn't seem to matter that much. No, no, I guess that's true. I mean, I think Elizabeth has more of a sort of messianic vision for herself and and this idea than do Travis or I mean, I don't know, Adam Newman. I've sort of mentioned a theory on this podcast before that, like, I think we crashed feels more about this era, this kind of ethos than about a particular company, you know, and I think that we really see that coming in with Rebecca's wellness talk, which is really kind of just borrowed from her cousin kind of and goop i mean we we literally have a reference to the infamous jade what is it yoni egg <laughs> the look on that actress's face as she's walking away with the egg <laughs> really oh, i wonder me. how many takes that took or if she just nailed it on the first because <laughs> it's really good and i don't know i guess in the way that america ferrera plays alicia you kind of wonder why she's wooed by all of this well, especially because she's she's a person represent she's represented as a person who's actually you know self made actually made a tangible product that people can use um in a way that I don't know I mean Uber sure but in a way that I don't think Adam or Elizabeth actually does right exactly and obviously like Rebecca sees something to envy in that and also maybe to get close to just to I don't know by proxy kind of osmos some of that self made confidence and and success and i guess adam kind of sees it too and he's looking sort of more vampiric in this episode and he just is like well he, oh here's someone who's actually oh, well that's that's because that's that's morbius you're seeing oh it's a morbius promo of course <laughs> right yeah i forgot that, that it's that they're in the same cinematic universe right oh well, i mean <laughs> adam newman is morbius i guess um but you that's know what i mean like that's what's going to happen in the back half of season one <laughs> they've kept that really under wraps but um It'll be a I'm big glad surprise. That G- Gabe Sherman didn't spoil that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I have, I did a little Google for Alicia Kennedy's name just to see, you know, if she was a real person. But you know, it's a, it's a fictionalized name at least. And um, there was one description that was like, "America Ferrera will play a character on on the WeWork show uh, who takes a job at WeWork and then it destroys her life." <laughs> And I'm just like, I feel really bad. And I wish I could just be like, no, go wander away in your mummy costume and, and don't, you know, don't spend any time with the Navi. But yeah, I guess it's valuable to see how even somebody cynical and and experienced and, you know, somebody who has a mind for business could get drawn into the cult of WeWork. Like it seems it, the Newmans are powerful and charismatic and uh, have the ability to, you know, ensnare people that would think maybe that they would be able to resist. Yeah, and I think that like one thing that's so strong about the first the early episodes of of We Crashed is that while you know that he's a huckster to some extent, 
the way that Jared Little plays Adam and the way that he's written, there is something magnetic about him. And I would say charming even um, because he's just an oddball, but he's one who is, you know, he's not aggressive like Travis Kalanick. He's not a, he's not a shifty liar in the same way that Elizabeth Holmes is. He's, he's gregarious. He has a warmth about him. You know, he was raised on a kibbutz. Like there's something kind of earthy in a way about him. But I think this episode really tries that, that, um, that affection, you know, I, I, I found him and I think it's on purpose, really exhausting in this episode and the way that he's just throwing stupid Wagyu beef parties and then <laughs> having run DMC, run DMC. While, while people are packing up their desks, you know, yeah, there's a there's a let them eat cake aesthetic happening. Well, it brings to mind, what was it? Was it BuzzFeed, the happy spring email? Happy spring, we're laying people off. Oh, God, I <laughs> forgot about that. I blocked that. <laughs> I mean, like, that's the thing is, like, it's stranger than fiction, you know, like, this stuff really does happen. Uh, and it's, it's kind of horrifying. Um, oh, speaking of kind of uh, people entering in companies, and then it, it not being quite what they, they hoped, at least, I mean, I don't know how Huffington felt about this. But I, I was googling David Bonderman, who is the, the other new board member uh, in this in the super this episode of Super Pumped. And um, he apparently during a board meeting, Huffington said uh, something like, you know, studies have shown that if there's one woman on a board, there will soon be two. And then Bonderman said something to the effect of, actually, what they say is that there's just going to be more talking. Yikes. Yeah, yeah. And so he, even though he's the one who brings Huffington in, is one of the sort of avatars of this, you know, boys club mentality uh, at the company. So you kind of, I don't know, watching these three episodes, you kind of feel like, I don't know, are... Are women doomed in these spaces inherently? I, I don't know. I don't know really know how to. Well, you you of... do get a sense that sort of like Elizabeth Ariana has kind of learned to use femininity to her advantage. I mean, she makes she makes men omelets. She wins them over by making food for them. Yeah. What does he say? This girl makes a mean Greek omelet. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's uh, it's really grim. Um. Should we get into it all about the Google of it all on Super Pumped? I mean, are are, are you, do, was it funny to see David Krumholtz pop up for you? Because I, I was like, oh, there he is, you know, Santa Claus. Yeah, both him and Ben Feldman. I, I feel like these shows are all kind of made for for you being like, oh, I know him. <laughs> like every everybody who pops up is recognizable in some way. Like uh, the, I, I forget the character's name um on... Uh, the dropout, but the lab supervisor who then speaks to John Carreyrou, um, that's uh, that's the guy from What Hot American Summer who does the magic show. That is an actor named Kevin Sussman. Yes. Uh, and oh, It's so uh, nice to see him popping up. It is. Uh, when I was in college, so this was the 1960s, um, <laughs> uh, a, a good friend of mine who lived in the dorm room next to me, uh, she he had been he had been in something, maybe it was Wet Hot American Summer, that she really liked. And she decided, and she did this for years, that she was going to like follow Kevin Sussman's career. <laughs> and so she'd like check his IMDb every once in a while. She'd watch whatever he was in, even if it was like a bit part. And so, um, yeah, there was a nice little nostalgic thing to see him, um, just as it was on the dropout to hear Kesha. Uh, the I mean, the dropout's music, the, the needle drops continue to just really hit you right in the chest including tyler schultz as played by dylan manette singing the general by uh, dispatch that was a song i have of... not thought of for many years i could uh, i could feel like the birkenstocks on my feet 
again as he started. I looked down and I was wearing a puka shell necklace. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I was at um, a campfire somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying weed for the first time. Um, <laughs> we had just, okay, we had is... just come from PacSun. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I just made another necklace at Beadworks. Um, do you... Okay, this is a dumb question, and I think it's probably unfair to the real-life people, Tyler and Erica, but there's is there a little romance vibe in this episode between them? It feels or am I like just it. Imagining things? I don't know if the show intended there to be, but it does kind of feel, if it maybe if it were not based on real events, I would expect them to be getting together at the end. Um, I, I think that, I know that Tyler is married to somebody else. I'm not sure uh, what Erica's status is now. Yeah, I don't either, but I do know that, that Tyler and Erica still work together. Um, oh, they nice. started some kind of initiative recently that's like about tech ethics, I think. Um, so if nothing else, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship and, and work partnership. And I think that's maybe what I, that's the kind of I'm mistaking for romance, which is just like, oh, here are two relatively more principled, relatively more decent kids who are, yes, going to take down this bad situation, but also like are finding themselves in the process, you know, as corny as that might sound. Yeah. And she's also interesting as a representative of like the working class, which I feel like kind of nobody else on either of these shows really comes from. Um, Like she is, she is somebody who does have things to lose, who can't just kind of, who can't throw caution to the wind, who has to actually worry about her own bottom line in a way that certainly none of the founders do. And it's an, it's a, it's an interesting tension for the show to introduce. Yeah, and it's interesting that, you know, that her one ally has to be the kid who's like, oh, my grandfather uh, ended the Cold War and is on the board. And she's like, well, this is, I mean, he seems nice enough and like, this is the best I've got. So, yeah, no, I of course, make... people, other people didn't speak out because they were afraid that they would be blacklisted and never work again. And, you know, it, it has to be somebody who has a safety net. Yeah, and Sonny makes those threats manifest. I mean, he really does li- literally just say that, you know. Um, I also think that the funny kind of odd couple pairing of Phyllis and Richard Fuse is is really well done in this episode. I think, you know, I had when I talked to Liz Merriweather, she was like, the first few episodes are more comedic and then it gets darker and darker, which has borne out. But I, I, I liked a little bit of the squabbling um, comic relief of these two, you know, more, let's say more seasoned people in this world, just uh, really bickering at each other and yelling on the phone. What, what did she say about... He was like, I'm trying to set the scene. And Phyllis says, he's a writer. He don't, he don't need to do that uh, when they're on the conference call with uh, Carrie Yu. Yes, the, the enemy of my enemy. Yeah, I, I, I really hope we get more of them. It seems like we will. Um, do you hope that anything... uh, we hear another song that Tyler wrote? Oh, Hillary, I have to be honest. I fast forward. I, <laughs> I couldn't do it. I couldn't it's... do it so difficult to i i mean you know not because the performance is bad but just because it's so humiliating um this song compares elizabeth to galileo tesla the biblical noah like it is it is you know you you talk about messianic like it was not it was right there like it was it is basically calling her a god it is so nuts that she inspired this at all like let alone in people who should have known better and i think that what that is and which just makes the exploitation even like grimmer is that it wasn't a rideshare service you know it wasn't a sort of work share space thing it was like we're gonna save people's lives yeah and so it's that much easier to i think dig in on the cult to the extent that 
at this person's 30th birthday, very young still, they're wearing masks of her face, which I believe did actually happen. That is so <laughs> it's creepy. So, yeah, and, and it's like supposed to be like... like she enters of, and it's really yeah. eyes wide shutty with everybody like turning around for her only to see her own face looking back at her. And behind one of those masks, in theory, was Henry Kissinger. <laughs> Watching that performance was, you know, no layers war of horror. Henry Kissinger. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's pretty bleak. And I have arrived, I think, at the point in the dropout where I'm really eager to see the fall. You know, like I, I, I you that sympathy has been worn down to some extent, and this culture has gotten gross enough that, um, actually, kind of for all three of the founders on these series like i'm 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 reaching a point where it's like okay now let's get the schadenfreude not even the schadenfreude the sort of justice of it uh you know I, i'm ready for that do you feel like the balance is right that there is less emphasis on that aspect than on the build-up i think that you know for audiences who aren't going to read the supplemental articles or read the you know listen to the you know fact-based podcasts like i think it is important to have a, a strong sense of how things began because a lot of people like myself have absorbed the news of the downfall but i didn't really know how it got to that point mm-hmm. so i i think in that way the shaping is correct um but you know these are three different shows in, in in some ways and 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 the stakes are are higher and lower depending on the series um so whereas i really like the human approach to uh we crashed and i think it's necessary i i think that part the uber story does need to be a little bit more techie in the weeds and also didn't start it's not an origin story that show super pumped you know it starts in medias race and i think that also was necessary so it's just an interesting thing to see these all these different writers coming to these projects and and telling the stories in different ways and based on you know a book in one case a podcast another another podcast i think in we crash case um but yeah i i think that like the arcs seem to be reaching their peak and we're now going to be uh in some denouement Mm mm-hmm yeah, I, I should also, uh, this is sort of apropos of nothing, but I do want to just let everybody know that in Brooklyn, there does exist a lactation consultant matching service called Boober. Um, so oh. Travis should Travis should perhaps not be <laughs> raked over the coals for coming up with that because somebody took it and ran with it. It's a real thing. Um well, with that, Hillary, um, I think we've reached the end. Uh, unless you had anything else you wanted to bring up, um, but uh, about lactation, yeah. I, I think probably <laughs> we can leave it there. I'm okay, sure that great, I'm great. sure that one of these people would love to disrupt that industry. Well, it's it's there to be disrupted. <laughs> well, Hillary, thanks for being with us once again. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, corrections, all that, please email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail Hillary, where can people find you when you're not talking about Boober? <laughs> Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Hillabuster. And you can find me at Rylaws. This episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. Uh, and until next week, happy investing. The Oscars are almost upon us, which means now is the time to start catching up on all of the buzz from this year's award season. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. 
Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone. I mean, that's how you know you really love and trust and respect someone, is that we can absolutely fight. Paul Giamatti. It's like, holy f- <laughs> He just nailed the f- out of that, sorry. And America Ferreira. It's like yeah. people standing around for hours just waiting to, like, be a part of this cultural moment. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now.